As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. Uh, Tracy, it's time for another episode about one of our favorite topics. Money. It's got to be money. It's got to be money. It's always money. I mean, all of our, in a sense, I guess all of our episodes are money, but how could you talk about things about money if you don't even know what money is or where it comes from? I agree that all of our episodes are money in that. What was that 1990s film use of the word money? Vince Vaughn and that no. guy. Where people were going, you're so money. Swingers? Yeah, swingers, that one. Our episodes are money in that sense, but they're also about money. They are. And of course, there's one of our favorite topics. And uh, today we have, um, I think we're going to explore with a slightly different angle than we sometimes do. So we sometimes talk about the origins of money. Does money come from the state? Is money inherently credit-based? What are the different kinds of things that we call money? I think we're going to attack the question from a slightly different uh, angle than we normally do. Yeah, I think this is going to be a really interesting episode because it's actually going to bring together a lot of the different discussions we've been having about specific types of money. So cash versus cryptocurrency or different types of cryptocurrency like Bitcoin versus something like Libra, uh, the currency that Facebook is currently working on and what the different use cases are for each of those, but also what the different sort of, I guess, societies that they create actually are, if that makes sense. Yeah, I like the way you put that, societies that they create. And of course, like money is just like really interesting because obviously uh, people pay pay for things with money, but, you know, people do new things with money that they hadn't always done. So it's like people pay in Venmo to their friends and they leave funny messages along with their Venmos. Like that's a new thing. That wasn't always the case. So within this thing of like payments or money, uh, how we use it, what its role in society is, how it connects us. It's uh, always evolving. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a big uh, inclusion discussion to be had there as well. So who has access to different types of money? So I'm interested in touching on that as well. So today I'm really excited. Uh, once again, we have a uh, past guest. We had, I think it was probably a couple of years ago now, but uh, we have her back. I'm very excited. Uh, we're going to be speaking with Alana Swartz. She's the professor of media studies at the University of Virginia. She's also a fellow at the Bergruen Institute, and she is the author of a recent book called New Money, How Money Became Social Media. So 
It'll be interesting, a uh, different angle than we've typically had. But uh, Lana, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's good to be back. You know, so like we said, this we like this topic. What is money? Money. But there is some question that arises sometimes, I think, which is why bother? Like, why do we talk about this question? Like, why is it interesting or why is it important? From your perspective, tackling this question from a different angle, and we'll get to this the the content of your book about money as social media, why is it even a thing worth studying in the first place in your view? Well, I know for me, so I started my PhD program um, right kind of in the aftermath of the last global financial crisis. So I was really in this moment of like, I was entering into a moment of scholarly study when it seems like the whole world was asking that question, you know, what is money? Why is money? Why do governments and, you know, traditional financial institutions have like the say over what gets to be money? And that kind of like post 2008 moment was when we saw, I would say, like really the emergence of what we now call fintech, what we now call the sharing economy, what we now call, um, you know, the gig economy, like all these different ways of doing money differently. Oh, of course, the crypto space. And so it suddenly seemed like like everybody was asking that kind of question. And so I became really interested in it at a time where I could also study people who were really interested in kind of questions of, of moneyness. Um, and at a time when people were starting to build new infrastructures to do money and do the economy differently. Um, and of course, my, as you mentioned, I am an assistant professor of media studies, and my background is in thinking about communication and media technologies. So I prior to that point had been, prior to kind of turning to money, had been looking at the emergence of social media. Um, you know, what do cell phones, what do social media networks um, mean for any number of different social questions? And I realized that there was almost no one inside the economy, inside academia, inside kind of this field of media studies, looking at the communication and technological infrastructures that make money happen. And we're they were undergoing this like kind of tremendous moment of transformation. So for me, as someone who studies technologies that move information around and um, the kinds of social and cultural dimensions of those technologies, um, I think it's important and interesting to study money because typically when we talk about money and we talk about kind of the politics or cultural meaning of money, it has to do with questions of like who has money, who doesn't have money, who doesn't have enough money, who has too much money. But we don't usually think about the infrastructures that actually move money around and how those infrastructures themselves have meaning and have power and how they're changing. So talk to us a little bit more about that point. What exactly is the overlap between media and money? Because I think to most people, it's not going to be immediately apparent. Oftentimes when I say, you know, my book is called How Payment Became Social Media, um, people immediately go to Venmo. And of course, that's true. Like Venmo. I'm such a cliche. I'm such a cliche. I immediately went there. And lots of Venmo in the book. So and I think Venmo is really fascinating. But, you know, Venmo is overtly designed to be social media. You know, I've one of my students mentioned uh, once and I, I think this even made it to the book. It's like literally Facebook blue. You know, it's a social stream that, you know, turns money into uh, into a form of kind of media. But if we go back and we think about, you know, the, the technologies of money, they have always kind of tracked alongside the money, the technologies of communication and media more broadly. Um, so we could go back to thinking about, you know, the way coins, the way tally sticks, um, the way any number, whether, you know, 
big rocks that you, you know, keep an oral history of, of who owns it in the case of the um, Tiv and the, well, the Isle of Yap. You know, those are all kind of information systems. And however we kind of keep track of information, whether it's through bits of, of shell or just kind of oral history is kind of the remit of what media and communication studies scholars are interested in. But if we think a little bit more, more recent, so paper currency does many of the same things that scholars in my field talk about paper um, culture, print culture more generally doing. So, you know, Benedict Anderson, who is a um, scholar of the, the printing press, talked about how the print and newspapers created an imagined community, it's his term, like the size and scale of the nation state. So we kind of learned to think about ourselves as members of nations through the consumption of printed media. And similarly, print currency is covered with iconography of the nation state. It tells us an efficiently sanctioned past and it allows us to project into kind of a shared future um, as kind of a community of shared faith. If we then, you know, think about, okay, like move forward into what you know, technologies of money have been. So, you know, the telegraph, you know, we think about Western Union as being primarily a money transfer service these days, but it's also, you know, one of the most important, you know, communication systems more broadly. Moving forward into the 20th, later in the 20th century, the very same computers, and in some cases, some of the same engineers who built the early internet were also um, building the Visa MasterCard network, yeah. which is this kind of, you know, global communication system. So, and you can still hear in some like, I haven't been to a bar in a really long time, but, uh, um, but you can still hear from the back in like the back ATM of some sketchy bar, like modem noises coming out of ATMs. And it kind of reminds us that, you know, this is an internet of sorts. You know, I'm old enough to remember that you couldn't, you know, you couldn't swipe a credit card or my mom couldn't swipe a credit card when someone was on the phone at the store in the 80s and 90s. And so now when we talk about new payment systems, we're looking at mobile, we're looking at the internet, we're thinking about crypto, which is like in many ways, there's a reason why we call it, you know, people jokingly call it magic internet currency and that sort of thing. So I, I try to say, all right, let's rethink money as communication, you know, think about transactions as literal, like transactions moving across from one account to another, um, and then look at the systems that power that communication, whether they are tally stick, paper, you know, um, telegraph, internet, whatever the case may be, and say, all right, you know, what are the politics of those systems? Who manages them? How do we use them to create meaning in our everyday lives? It's interesting. You, you, you may not know this, but on a recent episode, uh, so Tracy, after years and years of skepticism, a recent episode turned her into a Bitcoin bull. Uh, she she converted. Oh, anyway, but okay. it's interesting thinking about like you mentioned, um, imagined communities and Benedict Anderson and the printing press sort of reifying the state, because obviously you look at physical currency, icons of the state, founding fathers, other symbols that sort of emphasize this. It's interesting to think of like sort of like Bitcoin and crypto as the sort of like post nation state currency, which fits with the Internet as this sort of like, you know. We don't post newspapers, post sort of like post post print communities, I guess. Yeah. And, you know, I I will say I'm not, you know, hugely <laughs> bullish on crypto myself. I've been I've written some academic articles about um, 
Bitcoin and blockchain going back yeah. many years now. Um, I'm old in Bitcoin time, I guess. And and I do think that a huge part of what um, appeals about about Bitcoin or about crypto is the kind of community aspect. So this like sense of being part of a shared future that looks a particular way. Um, you know, I I have said I've written that you know all money is a stake. Um, it allows you to stake your claim in a particular future. Like all money is mm. kind of a, a prediction market in some ways, because if you're willing to accept and hold money, you're kind of betting on a particular set of outcome. So if you do believe in a future that is, as folks talked about in the 90s, like homesteading on the electronic frontier um, and that you're the pioneer, um, then why wouldn't you kind of put your money where your mouth is, so to speak, and, right. and start thinking about what kind of monetary systems would that would entail. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. So my time frame might be slightly off here because I haven't lived in the States for a while now. But um, from what I remember, like even five years ago or so, it was kind of difficult to send money very quickly to just a random person. Um, you know, you could do a wire transfer, you could do a money order, write a check, things like Venmo or um, other sort of instantaneous payment methods, maybe sending Bitcoin over the internet, something like that. They weren't really around yet. Why was that the case? Like, what is the justification for making money transfers that slow for so long? Yeah, whenever I speak to, you know, talk with folks in other parts of the world, they're always like, they don't really quite get Venmo because um, it doesn't quite make sense that we haven't yet had a good way to send friends um, money quickly and easily. And the United States has kind of historically been behind in uh, P2P payments. And I, I think there's kind of a couple different answers to that for, you know, in terms of the reason why, um, you know, one is, you know, just general lack of public investment um, or general lack of, of, you know, infrastructural investment that, that would enable something like that. In a lot of places in Europe, there is just, there are more public options for peer-to-peer -peer payment. Um, but also, I think one of the things I write about the book is that the Visa MasterCard network was developed at a time that imagined a much more um, kind of dyadic economy. So like there mm. were consumers, which were people, and there were merchants that were businesses, and there, wa there wasn't really a way for a person to be a merchant um, or and therefore a person to kind of accept payments. Um, and so we have, as you may know, and I could really geek out about this for a very long time, but people tell me um, that not everyone is like super no, interested are, in are, the credit card acquiring value chain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. go yeah. on. Just, go on. <laughs> so with credit cards, um, every, everyone has a bank that represents themselves, that represents them as they enter the kind of credit card network. So people have a bank that's their issuing bank that issues them a credit card. Um, let's say I have a Chase 
um, Sapphire card, so Chase is my issuer. And then if I'm a merchant, um, I have an acquiring bank who, you know, maybe let's say, oftentimes it's also Chase, but, um, you know, it could be Bank of America Merchant Services. And that acquiring bank, you know, acquires payments on my behalf, but also kind of holds the risk for me. And what that means is that if a customer wants their money back, um, then they will um, ask for a chargeback through their issuer, who will then go through the network and then go to the acquirer. And the acquirer, under the rules of the network, typically is mostly obliged to just give them their money back. So, um, so the uh, acquirer essentially pays the issuer, and the issuer then issues a refund to the customer. So then the acquirer has to then go to the merchant and say, hey, I've issued this chargeback. I need that money from you. And if the, which, you know, happens all the time, it's not usually that big a deal. Um, but if for whatever reason, the merchant faces a ton and t a ton of chargebacks or the merchant goes out of business or the merchant was a scammer, the acquirer is left holding the bag for all of that risk. So Acquiring services are priced according to risk. So if you're an acquirer, one of the ways you make money is by um, doing higher risk payments. Um, so anyone who, for the most part, who's an issue, who's a merchant can find an acquirer who like matches their risk appetite. But historically, that has not been so. There is no, there has not been any real way for individuals to have their risk assessed by an acquirer. And there has never been a kind of acquirer for people. Um, so there has never been a way for people to accept payments through the Visa MasterCard network. And then, you know, the big innovation in that space was PayPal in the 90s. Um, and of course, PayPal rides the rails, not primarily of the Visa MasterCard network, but of the ACH network. Um, so that's why you know, PayPal prefers it when folks use their checking account rather than like having to access and having to pay fees to access the network, the Visa MasterCard network. So it, it, we never, it was built in a time, the Visa MasterCard network was built in a time in the, you know, 1970s when we didn't have as much of a peer-to-peer -peer economy, didn't have as much as a, you know, person-to-person we didn't have as much of a person-person imagination for how the economy would work. And I think that that has a lot to hmm. do with our media infrastructure. That's yeah. interesting. So, I mean, the internet in many ways, like, allows us to imagine ourselves as economic actors, um, as people. And so the internet kind of had to figure out a way to allow us to get paid and to pay. So and I'm just wondering, so, um, you know, when Facebook launched Libra, which is sort of like the next iteration of a lot of what we're talking about, um, there were a lot of cynics out there who were saying, well, this is just a way for Facebook to get additional data on its users. Um, I'm curious, like how much of these new payment systems are about learning more about the individual to your point versus, you know, just dealing with the merchant? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, I think that that like anything else coming out of the tech industry, you know, there is a, a data imperative. There's a, a data play. Um, merchants, as I mentioned, pay to receive payments. And if and for the most part, we don't, you know, people don't pay to be paid, nor do we, um, nor are we willing to really pay to pay. Um, so there has to be some way that like this is being monetized. Um, and so for the most part, that has been, you know, 
imagined like everything else as and I kind of when I say how payment became social media, a big part of what I mean is like social in the Silicon Valley sense of the term, which means that there is a social data component. Um, And, you know, for a long time, folks in this kind of like new payment space talked about like mobile payments as kind of the holy grail of social data sets, because there was this kind of dream that if you could actually finally, um, you know, close the loop between targeted message to actual purchase in real space and time, um, then you would, um, you know, do something, you know, no advertiser has ever done before. I think that some of the business models have moved away um, to some extent from the kind of like direct advertising type of, you know, targeted advertising type of business model to thinking about things like developing new systems of risk analytics, um, you know, just kind of applying data to whatever data can be used for. And, mm-hmm. and in some cases, I've been somewhat convinced by um, Tim Huang's new book uh, that, that basically argues that it's possible that we don't, we can't actually get as much value out of all of these um data sets as we may hope. Mm. And then we may see some, we may be in the middle mm. of a, a data bubble, but nevertheless, the I, the kind of quest for data, which you guys should have him on the podcast. He's really interesting. Yeah, we should. I was just thinking that. What, what's the name of his book? His book is called, I can see it, Subprime Attention Crisis, Advertising and the Time Bomb at the Heart of the Internet. Sounds good. Is this like how I buy, like I bought like a new Dutch oven the other day. And then now all I get is ads for Dutch ovens. Yes, it's as like, if you were a Dutch oven collector. <laughs> you know? Right. If I were a Dutch oven collector, it might make sense. But if it were like, if it were some theoretically efficient market for data, yeah. someone's getting screwed. Like someone's buying a lot of impressions that probably they wish they weren't. You know, as all of the, right, exactly. And as all of the, you know, almost every major social media company has tried to do payments over the last mm-hmm. 10 years um, yeah. with varying degrees of success. And they've all applied kind of their standard MO um, to the, what they think they're going to do with it. So, you know, Google has imagined that they will sell like AdWords type of thing as it relates to payments. Facebook has imagined that they would kind of hoard it and figure out what they were going to do with it. Venmo is kind of interesting because Venmo has a public API. Um, It's quite easy to browse Venmo data. There's a lot of interesting art projects that um, kind of take it, exploit this. So um, that one of my favorites Hmm. is called public by default. And that is by an artist called um, by named Hangdu Thiduk, and she basically um, downloaded all Venmo transactions from the year 2017 and used it to create portraits of individual people. She calls them the humans mm-hmm. of Venmo, and she profiles like young lovers obviously getting into an argument and then making up and breaking up, and this one woman who seems to spend an inordinate amount of money on junk food, and someone who is almost definitely a weed dealer. Um, and she kind yeah. of yeah, and she <laughs> kind of uses it to. To say like, you know, which I, the the reason why I think this is so interesting is that yes, she's using it to say we should probably be making this private, but it also shows, you know, really how like poignant the stories our money tells are and how these are like lived experiences. Yeah. So I know you say like it's a cliche and everyone goes to Venmo, but there's obviously a reason for this because it's just so obvious. And like I use Venmo, but you know, like I don't put like clever things in my messages. I just like say straight up if I like if I'm splitting lunch, I'm splitting lunch. But obviously people do and they like use emojis or, you know, tongue in cheek jokes. 
why? Like, why is, and you, as you say, like, it's kind of weird that it's people are default public or that they let themselves, especially when you can then reverse engineer, you can figure, you know, there was some site that I saw that was basically just like every like pot transaction. Yeah, Vicemo. On Venmo, publicized. Yeah, Vicemo. So like, why? And what, when you, when people research this, what is it about the desire to make it fun, mm-hmm. their transactions or to make it public or to even reveal illegal activity that people are so comfortable doing? Yeah, I mean, I do think that the, I do think that money is fundamentally social, um, our transactions. Yeah. Are, and, and I think that for a long time, I think that people are uncomfortable admitting it um, and uncomfortable. Uh, like, and, and that's true for scholars, like, you know, whether we fall onto the side of being like economists who think like money is pursuing, you know, some sort of rational economic interest, or we fall under the, the um, camp of being Marxist who thinks that um all money reduces all the quality in the world to mere quantities. Um, at, historically, scholars have given money kind of short shrift, like it's insufficiently social, um, and and that right. or that money sociality is an aberration from how it's supposed to act. Um, and I think in everyday life, we tend to think about money as something we shouldn't talk about, um, or something that is we really feel the need to set apart from our social lives, our friendships. And Venmo kind of reveals um, how deeply social it is and how kind of fun it, it can be or meaningful it can be. Um, but I do think that that sociality isn't so straightforward as like these mere like I will put a joke that makes perfect sense with the transaction that I'm I'm doing. Um, and what I mean by that is when when I talk to young people who are big users of Venmo, they describe the kind of public performance element as usually indeed quite performative. So you're paying your rent to your roommate, right. but you're talking, you're putting margarita emojis to ensure that everyone has a sense that your <laughs> social life is more interesting than it is. You're fun. Right, yeah. exactly. And I, so I do think that that anyone who goes to Venmo data hoping to find some truth um, that is very straightforward is probably going to have to really dig to find these kind of like clear-cut stories. But I do think that what makes the data interesting to advertisers or to, you know, the FBI um, is the um, kind of social network, the kind of social graph in aggregate. So it doesn't really matter what I'm saying to you. Um, it's so, more so that we can kind of trace the transactions of, of the kind of flow of money. So, yeah, I mean, I do think a tr- I think a, an interesting part of that data set is that it is so available, but it is definitely one that we I don't think anyone has really figured out quite yet how um, it should be wielded or how it can be best wielded. Oh, the other thing I'll say about Venmo is that they've tried to sell themselves as a advertising um a site of advertising more recently. So, they there's like an ad on the Venmo site as of a couple weeks ago that shows like two just some guys having a conversation about some pants they bought so it's like you know oh sweet khakis bro and the other guys like yeah they fit pretty well and it's like the most artificial conversation you can imagine but the the advertising copy is you know you know put your brand at the center of real authentic conversations bef- between friends and when the young people that i interview or my students um at university of virginia look at this they just kind of think it's it's a joke so it's it's very so Social, but it might not be um, social in the way that people who, you know, the, the folks who want to make money off of it hope that it is. Um, there is something that we briefly touched upon that uh, I wanted to go back to and talk to in further detail. And that was the idea that money has historically always been wrapped up in notions of the nation state. 
And now we're sort of seeing that disrupted. And I, I think you use in your book this analogy that it's sort of like new media disrupting the old media and the old media would be the state in this particular case. Can you dig into that a little bit more? And what does it actually mean for society if money starts being divorced from the government? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in some ways, this goes back to the like homesteading on the electronic frontier analogy. So, um, you know, I hear people I've long heard people tell me that the Bitcoin is like the internet in 1995. Um, so it's this, you know, the fresh new thing that's open for, you know, um, reimagining all aspects of society. Um, and so I do think that many people who come to designing new money systems, um, specifically new currency systems are overtly trying to, like accelerate the process of the kind of decoupling of money from the nation state. I mean, if you go back and read some of the memoirs of the folks um, involved in the early days of PayPal, even PayPal, which was not Bitcoin, you know, did not have the same kind of aspirations Mm -hmm. that Bitcoin does, was imagined as kind of a libertarian project that would allow money to move around the world very quickly, um, that would disrupt some of the um, traditional state and traditional financial intermediaries, et cetera. Um, that clearly isn't exactly what it became. And even before that, um, D. Hawk, who is the kind of like unsung visionary behind Visa, so he was the CEO um, and founder of Visa. He's a really fascinating person. But in he write he wrote in the seventies that you know money now is nothing more than alphanumeric information inscribed on a magnetic strip. And therefore, in very soon, um, traditional governments and traditional financial institutions will no longer um, have a monopoly on the kind of issue and movement of money. Um, So this kind of like re-envisioning what society would be and kind of disrupting state-issued currency has sort of been at the heart of financial innovation for a very, very long time. And sometimes quite overtly, sometimes less so. But then, you know, thinking back to this idea that Bitcoin is the internet um, in 1995, I think that, you know, we we kind of have to follow what actually happened with the internet. I mean, the internet is not a anarcho-capitalist utopia or dystopia, as the case may be. You know, the internet has primarily been carved up by platforms and right. corporate behemoths. And I don't think there's necessarily any reason that we would anticipate that the same wouldn't happen for the kind of issue of extranational non-state currency. Um, I don't know why we're imagining. We, we so often imagine a future. But yeah. Go for it. I mean, it's cool that they're trying. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's yes. the thing. It's like, you know, there's a lot of like hand, like it, it's, you know, that's sort of the internet. I think maybe just because, you know, I'm older, but, you know, 10 years ago, I thought the internet was more fun when it wasn't just like, Facebook and Twitter and Google and people had individual websites and blogs and all that stuff. And then the internet got less cool when those things went away. So it's cool that people are trying, right? Absolutely. I mean, to build something that's not owned by a Silicon Valley trillion dollar unicorn. Absolutely. But I think the question is, why did that happen? Um, You know, what did over focusing on, say, I won't, I don't want to get too into the question of regulation, but are there ways in which the I the kind of fantasy that the internet should be divorced from going back to again like 1995 speak, um, you know, the like meat space governments and that the internet was truly gonna be this like 
heterotopia that existed in cyberspace that was like somewhere else and we should be really hands off about it. Um, did that allow those platforms to kind of come in and carve it up? Um, so another question, I guess, you know, another way to put that would be having learned that lesson, how can we protect um, the kind of future of the internet and, and the future of the kinds of, you know, a, a, when it comes to money? So if we're, if we're really imagining a future where money is primarily, so I actually don't think state-issued currency is going anywhere, but I do think that it will probably live alongside a variety of other currency forms. And I don't necessarily believe that those currency forms will all be, you know, anarcho-capitalist or libertarian or, or however inflected with any kind of values, alternative money forms. I think that we have every reason to believe that they might be corporate monies and maybe we don't want that. You know, everybody joked a couple of years, I guess it was about a year ago now, maybe more than that, um, when Howard Schultz, you know, CEO, former CEO and uh, of of Starbucks, but this was be sometime before he launched his presidential campaign, um, was saying he does think that there will be a future of, of non-state money forms that are based on blockchains, but he doesn't think that they will be Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, rather they will be issued by a few, as he put it, kind of like trusted brands um, that would, you mm -hmm. know, steward these money forms. And everyone kind of laughed at him. It was like a funny little moment of like Twitter schadenfreude for like somebody said something that sounded really stupid. Right. But if you think about it, Starbucks has probably the most ubiquitous, most still most widely used mobile payment system in the United States. Um, we, you know, we've, mm -hmm. Uh, Venmo and other um, payment companies were have been trying for a very long time to get an app on people's phones. And really before Venmo, the only one that was on anybody's phones was a Starbucks app. Um, they have greater geographic breadth and depth than the U.S. Postal Service. So if we compare them to postal banking in terms of like what a branch network might look like, they're doing pretty good. They are truly global. They do have something like their, you know, loyalty points and all of that that people really do care about when you get to talking to people about their Starbucks stars, they get um, really passionate about it. So I can imagine a future where many of our kind of plural currencies are issued by brands, are corporate, and, you know, we can't stay too focused on the kind of um, sci-fi vision of the future and instead kind of think about what, you know, various forms right. of utopia and dystopia will look like. And historically, I say yeah. we fight for the sci-fi version. Let's not give in to Starbucks. <laughs> Maybe it'll happen eventually. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, it could, but let's not accept it. I yeah. Let's not just let's not preemptively surrender. Well, you know, historically, I mean, Tracy mentioned that you know money has we're moving away from money as a you know emerge being tied to the nation state. But historically, and in many places in the world, more often than not, money has been quite plural. Um, so, you know, of course, the free banking era, but, um, you know, one of my favorite books on this is a book called City Reading by David Henkin, who's a, a historian, where he writes about how in before the Civil War, when people moved to New York City, they had to negotiate all different kinds of monetary media, you know, um, Banknotes issued by countless different banks, but also banknotes that were issued by banks that had gone bust, counterfeits, real ones, but that, you know, so it's like, is your bank good? And is like the money, is the bank good? And is the money good? And like, and 
is this money going to be, even if it is a real bank, is it something that someone will take in the city that I live in? Like maybe they'll take it in Philadelphia, but they won't mm-hmm. take it in New York. Um, and and to be to be a, a city liver, a city dweller in um, antebellum New York, you had to really know how to at a glance, like decide if you were going to take a form of money, if you could use a form of money. Um, and it was really complicated. People lived very complicated monetary lives. And I think, so I think that more we're going to have to learn with living in a kind of cacophonous monetary media right. ecosystem. And in some ways we already are, if we think about things like Starbucks cards or, you know, my Chase Sapphire Reserve confers all kinds of uh, um, benefits upon me. Um, if I use an EBT card, I can only, I can't buy hot rotisserie chicken, but I can buy because that's prepared food and right. is disallowed, but I can buy rotisserie chicken that has been taken out of the hot case and chilled, making it no longer hot food. Um, So I am really interested in the question of like, what is monetary mass media and what happens when we move to monetary social media, which is like, you know, all of these new kinds of systems. But in many cases, we're already living in a world where mass media, when it comes to money, is kind of a myth, um, where money is really complicated for people. And we need to kind of pay attention to that. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. So that antebellum New York example uh, reminded me of something else that I wanted to ask you, which is if if we're talking about money as a societal thing, well, societies are about inclusion, but that also means excluding some people, right? You can't have a group of people without sort of creating an, an opposite group that you compare and contrast yourself against. And I can see like in New York, making the money system as complicated as possible was probably a very good way of distinguishing New Yorkers from, you know, the rubes who are coming in from the country or whatever. What sort of barriers are being built into new systems of money? And what does that mean for the future? There are questions of inclusion, exclusion. So for example, you know, I'm kind of at a soft soft war with this very expensive smoothie store um, here in my town because they refuse to take cash. Um, And, you know, they're like, here's that lady who's coming around again who wants to talk to us about how we're excluding poor people from our smoothies. But it's kind of true. You know, the the kinds of money that we take create various kinds of inclusion, exclusion. But I also like to think about the term predatory inclusion. So you can almost always find a way to pay for something. But what are the terms of that inclusion? So if you think about, um, you know, 
most prepaid cards have tremendous fees attached to them. Um, you know, you have a fee to every time you swipe the card, you have a fee every time you put money on it, you have a fee if you need to cancel it, you have a monthly maintenance fee, et cetera, et cetera. So whereas someone like me with my credit score is getting like paid every time I pay with my Chase Sapphire Reserve, somebody else is actually paying, you know, they're, they're in fact not, their payment is not at all clearing at par. Um, so I think that we do need to look at questions of, of inclusion, like can you be involved in the economy, but really like what are the terms of that inclusion as you enter the economy um, mm-hmm. and how, how are they, you know, how are these systems being monetized? So before we go, we have to uh, wrap up. I mean, obviously there are some sort of very blatant examples of money as social media. We talked about Venmo, very easy to understand how cryptocurrencies are social, Libra, the memo on checks is a social, the old Western Union and the Telegraph. What's uh, in your book? What's the most sort of surprising social money that you discovered? Or what's the most sort of like weird thing that maybe people haven't heard of as much? One thing that I think is very interesting um, is, you know, everyone knows about Chase Sapphire Reserve. And I mean, your audience right. probably does. And how um, when it first came out, there was some, and you know, various premium cards, there's always like drama over if it increases access to premium lounges and kind of opens up space to people who might not, you know, there was a, a, a complaint, I think, in the New York Times that was like the premium lounges have become a zoo now that everyone with a, with a particular credit card can get in. But there are other cards and other loyalty systems that kind of open up access to these like previously hidden or rarefied realms. And one of the ones that I think is really interesting are um, on their credit cards designed for owner operators of trucks. So like truckers, long haul truck drivers, um, and they, uh, and like lots of loyalty geared at truck drivers who do in fact ring up quite a bit of interchange, which is what pays for the rewards because they're on the road and spending a lot of money and swiping their cards many times. Um, and so rather than there being these kind of like premium airport lounges, there are premium truck stop gas areas. So if you are a have status as a truck driver, you can enter certain areas of truck stops that you or I don't even know exist that allows you to get huh. gas kind of more Whoa. quickly. Yeah. Get access to showers, that. that sort of thing. Yeah, I know. I really want one of those cards. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think the they're like the the kind of gas pumps that are geared for like you know, semi-trucks. So I don't think that even like work with, with normal cars. Um, so they're definitely not um, geared for us. And I don't think you want to take a shower at a truck stop. Um, although you might, if we're all driving now that we're not flying as much anymore because of Once COVID. COVID's over, I'll take a shower. Yeah. <laughs> um, and of course, because these are business cards, um, because these folks are owner operators, they're not as, um, they're not, they don't fade, they're not as regulated as heavily as consumer cards. So hmm. they, they do have perhaps higher credit lines than someone might qualify for as an individual. They're higher interest rates. They can be kind of part of this kind hmm. of predatory inclusion if people aren't very careful about how they manage them. But I did, you know, I write about an account of a trucker who talks about, you know, the kind of loyalty rewards from these trucker cards as quote unquote, like food stamps for truckers, because they allow truckers to access hmm. Um, a shower, access a meal, access like a, a rest stop when they need to, even if they at the moment don't have um, the funds. All right. That was awesome. Uh, Lana Swartz, thanks so much for uh, coming back on Odd Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Lana. 
I really like talking to Lana. I find this like an endlessly fascinating subject. I love the um, I love the reference to Benedict Anderson. I don't know if you've ever read that book, but this idea of like print forming the sort of conception of like community and nationhood and then thinking about what like post print culture and post print money looks like is just sort of a super fascinating thing with uh, what I think is probably a lot of many significant implications to that. Yeah, I think the idea of money being sort of wrapped up in communication, which means that it's inevitably wrapped up in communication technology, and it sort of changes along with those new technologies as they're developed. I think that makes a lot of sense. I also really liked um, her idea of uh, the price of financial inclusion, because I I think we do think a lot about people just being locked out of new payment systems or even people who aren't able to get bank accounts and things like that. And we don't often think about the flip side of that, which is, you know, when they are included, what are the terms of that inclusion? And once they're sort of embedded in a particular payment system because of the data aspects that we were talking about, does that mean that they're locked into it basically forever? Like, are you always going to be tagged as a person who has this particular credit score or a person who lives in a particular way? And you know, therefore, for the rest of eternity, you're going to be getting advertisements for Dutch ovens to your example. But, you know, if you're a poor person, maybe for the rest of your life, you're going to be getting pushed loans and financial products with a higher interest rate than you would otherwise. Yeah. And I thought the question that you asked was I had never thought about uh, her answer before about why our system is so clunky when it comes to two way money. And so why is it, you know, and this idea that there is like, at one point, there was like this sort of like fundamental difference between a merchant and a and a buyer and a purchaser, and that they had different needs, and that different types of merchants run different uh, levels of chargeback risk. So presumably, there are things uh, there there are merchants for whom they're always dealing with customers trying to scam them and trying to get their money back, and others for whom not so much. And that that sort of like gradation of risk is a very sort of like alien concept to the individual. I thought that was super interesting. And then sort of like helps to like sort of recontextualize all these different efforts by like social media companies who like know so much about us to turn us all into both payers and recipients of money. Yeah. And I guess the big question is whether or not individuals do start getting risk profiles in that sense, sort of like that, you know, that Black Mirror episode where um, everything's determined by like your Instagram profile do you remember that oh yeah i don't think Did i ever, ever saw that, that one. you know what oh. can i just say i saw the first episode of black mirror and i got too freaked out by it and i never watched another one <laughs> all right this one would freak you out because this one i could see actually yeah. like happening um but this idea that maybe like your social media profile or your online profile is eventually going to feed in how you are perceived as a financial risk or a financial credit i think i mean i think to some extent we're already on the way to that Yeah. Well, it also raises the question, I don't know, like, if you ever read his stuff, J.W. Mason, he's like an economist at uh, John Jay here in the city. He makes like this really interesting point in some of his writing, which is that, like, our bank account in this weird way, like, if you like look at your bank account, you have X amount of money in some sort of like abstract sense. It's supposed to be some representation of all of your historical decisions, right? It's it's this sort of number that represents every purchase and every income you've made one minus the other. And so in a way, like money is 
all is on some level this sort of like measure of our past selves and then thinking about it in terms of like explicitly measuring our social media or monitoring our social media is almost like making even more explicit what money is attempted to do i don't know if that makes any sense hmm. but no it does money is a source of identity yeah yeah it's uh, I, I, it's a it's a great subject and even uh, um there's a reason we always like to talk about it. Yeah, there definitely is. I'm definitely going to read Lana's book now, which is also an audio book. So maybe I'll be yeah. listening to it. Okay, shall we leave it there? All right, let's leave it there. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Jill Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And you should follow our guest on Twitter, Lana Swartz. She's at Lana Lana. And check out her new book, New Money, How Money Became Social Media. And be sure to follow our producer, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcasts, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts under the handle at podcasts. Thanks for listening. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.